step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, the sponsor for this episode is Studio Sweden. Their latest model, Tolv, is fully wireless, with microphones on each side and a range of up to 50 feet. They have a seven-hour battery life, plus they come with a charger that can provide four more full charges. Check out all of their models at studio.com and use the code IWB15 for 15% off, plus free worldwide shipping. Thank you. This is Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, Bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. It's okay. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected with personal information removed whenever possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or national hotline. In the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800 273 8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. Have you faced death? Heavy question, right? But there's something about it. There's something about having had an actual near-death experience, whether that be an accident or a medical event or violence, or whatever. I don't know, it changes you. I didn't set out to do a whole podcast on it, because I don't know that I'm, I don't know, strong enough, or well-adjusted enough, or something. Like, it, it feels beyond what I can cope with, which is kind of ironic, I understand, since my show started off as true crime and murdery and shit like that. But I have the option of stepping back, of dipping into lighter shows and lighter topics, and I use that 
because I don't have that sort of fortitude. My friend Angela does. Her show is called And Then Suddenly, and it is about the moments that change you. So they're not all near death, but they're those moments in time where you look back and you're like, before this happened, everything was one way. And then suddenly, which happens to be the name of her show, and then suddenly everything's different. I've had a bunch of those. Not all near death. Sometimes they're just defining, right? The birth of a child or getting married, right? Those are, those are choices that change your life, or at least I guess they should in my world. And then I've had others where I have survived violence or I have had major medical incidents. And that's what I talked about on her show, episode 33 of her show in August. And I'll link to it in the show notes. I talked about when I had Isaac and the medical nonsense and drama that came out of that. But there's just, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Like, some people live through life with a fairly smooth trajectory, I think. And then there's others of us who just go from moment to moment of these, like, I feel like I stay fairly steady from now until the next big thing. And I've become cynical enough that I know the next big thing is coming, right? I know the piano is falling on my head. I know that there's about to be a sinkhole in the road in front of me. I can hear the whistle of the meteor headed toward me. Like, I know that something big and bad and fuckety is heading my way. Like, that's just my life. And other people just have one. And, and, and yet I know that there are people out there who don't have any. And that's, that's magical to me. Like, I hope you never do because the loss of control and the loss of agency and sense of purpose and competency and what life means, like all of these things change in an instant and That's heavy, man. It's not easy. So I had a conversation with Angela on her show in August, and then it was her turn to come on my show. And it has its heavy moments for sure, but you also just kind of get a sense of who's behind her show. And she's got her own story, and she's pretty fascinating. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss.
Angela Santello. I am a storyteller. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, based in New York City, and I am producer and host of the podcast. And then suddenly, yeah. describe that for me. What is like? I know what it's like, but but describe. Oh, my 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 show. <laughs> I talk to a diverse group of guests about one moment that turned their lives upside down. And because I think we tell cliches about big moments, I don't know the moments until we talk. And so the conversations are candid and impromptu and just want to hear real stories about very complicated moments. What made you decide to go in that direction? I had an and then suddenly moment. (laughs) What does that mean? Uh, I guess I've coined the term and then suddenly moments because uh, that's the name of the show and it's it's a moment that that turns everything upside down. It's it's a moment that ha- is a cliffhanger that leads to a total new story. If you're talking about it like in, in a narrative way, um, my and then suddenly moment was about five years ago. I was diagnosed with the stomach flu, which ended up being appendicitis but I have a really high tolerance for pain and it ruptured. It stayed open for four days. And when I got into the hospital, I was dying. (laughs) Kidneys had stopped working. I was in a sort of pain that was just horrific. And at that time in New York City, I was pursuing very hardcore, uh, a career in theater. I was a playwright at MFA. I acted on the side a little bit. Um, I was familiar with design work. Uh, I was trained in collaborative theater, so working with different artists. And um, and that moment changed me. Um, on the show, on the first episode of the podcast, I pinpointed the actual moment to leaving the hospital. I lost 25 pounds in the hospital, but wasn't aware of the weight loss because of the hospital gowns and all the tubes and stuff. And I had this very surreal moment getting dressed in my civilian clothes in the bathroom and nothing fit. Like my underwear was hanging off. My bra didn't fit. And that's when I realized like, oh, life has changed. And it led to a very strange problem with theater that what I had been working so hard for no longer had the same stakes for me use a theater term like it st- as far as like it didn't feel as high pressured it didn't feel as desperate or big and I didn't know how to process that and I also kept getting all these dumb cliche questions about almost dying like people wanted to know if I was so happy to be alive or did I know what my greater purpose was or did I feel closer to God and none of that was true for me I I just felt lost and nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> they they want to hear like a canned helpful hallmark answer I found. And I got really angry during that process because I thought something was wrong with me and I realized that most of the stories I had seen well most of the plays about illness either the person dies or it's about the caregiver. You never see what happens after the hospital and I think that's true for most movies too. And I'd never seen a story about someone almost dying and showing the really complicated aspect that that has on their life. And I got very angry because I'd seen hundreds of plays, read so many books, and I couldn't find anything that related to me. And I started talking to people. I became trauma obsessed. I wanted to talk to anybody who had experienced trauma. And I realized that these moments were fascinating and, uh, and 
go against the grain as far as what's easily told in a story format, because stories do need to have like three acts or five acts or however you want to quantify it. They need to have a beginning, a middle and end or else people go mad. (laughs) So they need to be neater, but yeah. So it led me into this podcast because I wanted to start, as I said, I think on the first episode, I wanted to start doing this in public, having these conversations in public. I think they would help people who are going through times where they feel like, why do they feel so weird? The, the, the dark, you know, the, the place in the dark woods is very confusing. And I think it's good to know that everyone has gone through the dark woods in some capacity and how lost and confused you're feeling. That's not a, that's not a singular experience that most people are trying to get through their moments. So preach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, people know that I was sick. People know that I got through it. And I haven't, the whole episode, the whole story on your show. And so I don't need to go into that. But I feel like I've had a bunch of those sort of watershed moments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've never felt so. And I do think people have more than one. Uh, you, yeah. Well, especially it's more, some more than others. I feel like some people, I look at them kind of like you would look at a creature in the zoo. Mm-hmm. Right. Where like I kind of walk by and I'm fascinated but I don't quite know how to interact with them. Like, I'm glad there's glass between us, you know, when their whole life is like this really nice, gentle slope. And I feel scared for them. Well, there is that. Because I'm like, one day. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know that. You know what I mean? Like, if they've made it this far, maybe uh-huh. they'll just fade off into the distance. Like, I don't know. Or yeah. they have stories that they can't tell, whatever it is. But there are people that I know of who've, who, like, the concept of trauma is foreign. So, I mean, good for them. On the other hand, (laughs) like for me, so you know what a fractal is, right? You've seen those sort of patterns and those are, those are mathematical. Mm -hmm. And that's as much as I can explain on that because my husband's the mathematician, not me. (laughs) But what I do understand is that they're, they're supposed to be random. They're supposed to be chaos. But if you look at them, they form patterns and, you know, a lot of sort of paisley looking or light and dark areas. And that some areas on fractals tend to collect more data points, more mm. pattern and chaos than others. Those are called strange attractors. I like that. That's me. <laughs> like my whole life, I felt like has been a series of stories. And any one of them is enough to have somebody be like, wow. Like, that's a lot. And then, like, and then, <laughs> you know, and, and another story and another story. And I feel like just, and I don't know if that's because I'm an antenna for it or a magnet for it or just that I'm open to it. Who knows? I mean. Yeah, there's no answer. Like, like I remember when I was going through, like, when I was trying to process everything, a friend took me to a Buddhist meditation in New York City. I believe it was in the East Village. and. um it was a. It was not a meditation. A Buddhist, uh, someone who was practicing, wrote a book about being in a plane crash, and being one of the only survivors and dealing with, I think, third degree burns to most of his body. And he brought up a point, which is, I guess, you know, Buddhists believe that every day you will suffer because every day you wake up and something happens that you don't want it to. There is an obstacle. There is, you know, something that gets in the way. And also, like, who are you to say that you are more important than suffering? Like, why not you? Why wouldn't you have one of those situations happen? What makes you so special? Um, so I don't know if someone's a magnet. I just think suffering happens. And I don't know. I feel like it's 
random sometimes. I don't know. Who knows? You know? Well, they're totally the idea. You know, like I used to get so angry at people who are like, everything happens for a reason. I know it doesn't. I, no. like, fuck your reason. Like, no. <laughs> I had some family members who are like, you know, have you looked back and thought about why this happened? And I'm like, you know what? Nothing that I did in my life required me to be hospitalized for, for 16 days and to go through the pain. And like, I don't have an appendix scar. They sliced me down the middle to wash out my organs out of my body. So like, I don't understand. I was like, none of this was, it happened. Okay. But no, it didn't happen for a reason. Ball. Yeah. No, no, I had, I had a huge problem with that. Um, both, the everything happens for a reason mindset, like something happened, you know, 15 years ago that we, you know, the butterfly effect, right? Where I stepped on the wrong butterfly and therefore because of that, a, a tsunami did not occur in Japan. And therefore I, what I like, I don't know. So I don't believe anything I did caused it. Like in, you know, in my case, my, my major illness of my life occurred because I gave birth. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, how would I you gave say, birth. Like, so should you not have given birth? You know, right, I, I gave, I gave birth in a hospital yeah. under under medical care, carefully. You know, like I did all yeah. of the things that you're supposed to do, and yet, you know. And then I look at other the other side of that thing of everything happens for a reason is. You had to go through this thing in order for other, like, it's purposeful. And I hate that too, because I'm like, life is not better for suffering. And you know what? That whole, that line about what doesn't kill you makes you, makes you stronger. No, sometimes it leaves you broken and sobbing on the floor. Yeah. And so like, am I stronger for having gotten sick? Actually, physically, no. And I would argue emotionally, no. I've just proven that I could survive a thing. Yeah. And for me, like, I, I, I mean, I became stronger because my relationship to my body changed. And I decided that since I didn't have to be on dialysis, since I went in as a healthy person, like that was my investment into that incident that I went in with a healthy body and my long-term impacts weren't so bad that I became a runner because I was like, life is too short. I'm able to walk and like sit on a toilet without assistance. I'm going to run a goddamn half marathon <laughs> because I could. And I was like, and I'm not going to like, I'm going to take advantage and love my health and get, and so by practice, I've become stronger, but I would say like this whole, I'm stronger, but I'm not better. Like, I don't think you ever get better from this stuff. You get different. And, and that is something I like, I am not the same person I was like on a mental level, I'm not on a physical level. I'm not like I might run half marathons, but I can't digest a lot of foods without getting in severe pain. So, but you just get different and cause and effect is going to happen anyway. I don't like the idea that you have to rationalize that. Like that's just science, you know, like if you, something happens to you, it's going to cause an effect on someone else, but that doesn't mean it's for the benefit of anybody. That's just the way interactions in life go. I don't know. It's yeah, no, I yeah, all of the about like I get frustrated at all of the, the 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 I understand. I do understand that 
people want there to be a reason why a thing happened and then they want the thing that was important they want it to continue to be important for some reason like it gives meaning to life and i accept that but at the same time i feel like it's possible that you could have reached a state of higher body awareness and health focus without having almost died. It's possible. Who knows? Totally. You know, and so I don't feel like any one thing, like I accept that everything that happened to me had to happen in the way that it did in order for me to end up here right now. Like, so I don't have regrets and I don't wish for change. But that being said, I'd be okay with a history that didn't include some of the big bad shit that it includes. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to me, like these are messy stories, right? Like they, they're not like um, linked to some greater purpose or higher meaning or they're, they're very, they're, yeah, I would say they're messy and, and there's a lot to be interpreted in that. There's a lot to, to digest that isn't comfortable in that. And I think those are the stories that are important to tell or, or share, you know, cause they're messy. It's, you know, not everything happens for a reason. <laughs> right, right. No, I'm, I'm right there with it. And so, I mean, I get frustrated with a lot, like, so another story in my life that comes up a lot. And I've recently actually had a listener. Hi, whoever you are, bite me, um, write to me and say that, I was dwelling too much on my father's death in my episodes lately, and I should, direct quote, get over it. Now, <laughs> my father died in April. So That's Not that long ago. Four months ago. He died by suicide. He had been living with us, went on vacation that we thought, and he died in Las Vegas. So, like, everything about that sentence gets worse and worse and worse. You know, like there's no good outcome here, especially not yet. Like the grief is complicated and it's dark and it's heavy. And this concept that I'm supposed to get over it is fascinating to me because it's so central in my life right now. I feel like they used a lazy word. Like I think what they meant is don't keep sharing it. Well, I mean, not that I'm going to interpret, but I, but like, cause that's a weird thing to say to somebody, but it's another thing to be like, why is this a repetitive thing in your head? You don't always have to talk about it when it's happening, but it does feel like when you're processing this stuff, it's on repeat. And sometimes it's all the time and sometimes it skips a little bit and it's a little quieter, but you're, you're going through it. Like, well, exactly. And that's, that's the thing that was just fascinating to me about how we, we want to, project our own needs onto other people. And so this is a person for whom the concept of death and the concept of suicide or the con- whatever it is, some concept in here bothers them in a personal way. And yeah. to which my response is, first of all, like I said, bite me because I mean, to get technical, I know, <laughs> but that it's my grief and I need yeah. to walk this road, how I'm walking it. And it might make other people more comfortable for me to act like everything's okay, but that's not what I'm about. It's not what my show is about. Nobody's forcing anybody to listen. And I don't, I honestly, I feel bad about it. I don't want to bring it up all the time, but it's there. It's in my head all the time. And I don't have much in the way of filter. I get that. You know? I get that. 
And I also wonder, like, I find this a lot with my guests who are, ta- are talking about their moments is that I think we're really uncomfortable with the idea of time. Like a lot of this stuff needs time to process. And I just don't think we're a culture that marinates <laughs> or is comfortable with the idea of marinating that like there is this concept, like, can't you just get over it? And it's like, no, a lot of these big things take years to process and live out. And, uh, you know, time is the best medicine and that's just how it goes. And I think we're uncomfortable with that because. Yeah. Well, we we want, and so what I've found like with my father's death has been an interesting situation because I am, I'm right on the front lines, but I'm one step removed. And so I've watched people work so hard to apply their needs to my situation right? And so I get a lot of questions about, did he leave a note? Did you see it coming? Did he say anything? You know, these sort of questions, which, uh, um, duh, no, you know, like, because they're asking, did I know before he left? Like, he, he wouldn't have left my house if I'd known before he left. Like, don't ask that. But I get it. I get why they're asking. And, and I also, under, like, he did not leave a clear note. He left journals, but he didn't leave a note, per se. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they're asking. What they're asking is, tell me what was different about him so that I know my relatives aren't going to do the same thing. Yeah, that an act of random you know, can happen ad, to someone ad, I love. Well, and just identify for me something bizarre yeah. and weird about that situation so yeah. that I can comfort myself and know that I'm okay. So yeah. I get that, but I also can't give it. I can't provide that comfort that they want. No, and I think that's fair too. I think that's that's the real story they need to hear. In your case, someone else might have a different story based on their experience, and that's fine too. But yeah, it is. And so, you know, so I get that. I get questions about what may, what means did he use? And the answer yeah. there is like, I get that there's a sort of perverse fascination around it. There's a, you know, we all have that rubbernecking thing that you do when you drive past an accident on the highway. And I think, again, there's this feeling of like, could it have been a mistake? That's really, I think, what's being asked. Because mm. even with pills or a gun or like a lot of things with a driving accident, with a lot of things, there's a way that you could look at it and be like, well, maybe they didn't really mean it. And I think that's something that would give people comfort maybe is to feel like maybe it wasn't suicide. Maybe it was an accidental such and such. And I can tell you unequivocally, this was not an accident. There's no way it could have been. Yeah. And again, there's a, I think a meaning and a comfort that people are looking for. Yeah. That's fascinating. That I can't get, you know, and so it's, it's things like that and, and things like, what does this mean in my life now? Like, how are you doing since your father died? Like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm doing. I'm. It's day to day and yet to be seen in the grand terms. Exactly. And they, they yeah. want me to say, like, they want me to be sad and grieving. And I'm like, there are some days I do. There are other days I am pissed. Yeah. You know? And then there's other days where I, I'm dealing with four kids. I don't even notice. And that's yeah. not the answer anybody wants. You know what I mean? So it's like this, this complicated stew that people approach it with. 
Yeah, but I think this stuff is inherently complicated. Nobody has a very organized way of dealing with death of any kind. I mean, it's just, it's a big, messy event and it's highly personal and yet universal in the way that grief is unpredictable, that grief takes a long time, that grief is complicated. Uh, It's messy. Yeah, it's messy. And we don't like messiness uh, because it leaves a lot of ambiguity and we like certainty. We like to know (laughs) what's going to happen. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me. That's okay. Um, And so that's been a thing that I've noticed is just like, it's not just that the fascination with other people's trauma, the draw toward it, I think is both in a caring sense and an empathic sense, but also in a magnetized sort of feel. You know, people Mm -hmm. are drawn even when they don't want to be. And, you know, I I, I always feel like there there becomes like my, my grief or my loss becomes your loss. It becomes a shared experience between us. And sometimes that's a true thing, right? Like, my sisters and I share the loss of our father. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a false thing. Like my mother is, it's complicated, but has become involved in a way that I had to cut her out, at least for now. And, and a lot of that has to do with a sense of almost like as though grief is a finite quantity and she needs to have more than me. Right. Mm, so now it has become this strange thing between us. Yeah. But I look at her like this is not a shared experience. So and it's a weird thing to get competitive about. It is. Like it is. That doesn't do anything for anybody. Like go on your own journey, connect with the community who can like remember the same person and maybe identify some relate in some of the same kind of experiences they're having. But it's still those very personal experience. Yeah. That's and, weird. And so, you know, I, I, that's at least a perceived shared experience maybe with my mother. But yeah. then I have other people who, who are clearly sort of projecting their stuff onto my experience. And it's like, you didn't, you never met him. You don't know the guy. Do you know what I mean? And it, mm. it, when like teachers at my kid's school will ask questions that I find invasive and it's like, Okay, this is just morbid curiosity now. You're, you and I don't have a shared grief here. Do you know what I mean? So it becomes this, this feeling of ownership almost, like other people want to own your process. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what that is about. That's weird. I mean, I, I would get some comments after I got sick, like people trying to one-up me in very weird ways where I was like, well, this isn't a contest, but I won, but I'm not competing with you. Like they would, they'd be like, oh, I had like, I don't know. I don't want to get into specifics, but that they would have medical procedures, which let them be out of the hospital in a day and a half. And they didn't have, they, but they were trying to say it was just as bad as mine. And I was like, well, that's comparing like peas to carrots. So I don't know how you can compare the two. Also, like, I don't know, you weren't in the ICU unit for six days. So I don't know what to do. I, mean, okay. I look at the, but I almost think like, as soon as somebody throws down, because I, I, I try not to like mm, dive in with my story. No, no, totally. But you know what I mean? Like, I always win. I always win. And so I get stuck with these misery competition people. 
Like it doesn't. Okay. Here's the thing with the misery competition, right? There's two options. Either you lose and nobody likes to lose or you win in which case you're the most miserable. (laughs) Well, and also like, I feel like people's ability. So like, you could take the actual event, like what happened with procedures or whatever, but that also, it doesn't also take into consideration, like, like it might not be so bad for some people. I mean, it's bad, but that like, they might have the kind of personality where they can adapt really well to it and, and move forward. And other people have a much harder time. Like it's hard to justify who is in greater pain or in greater suffering because how would you even do that? You can't even do that. Just there's so many factors about that whole experience. Like I was in a bad car accident when I was 17 and I was medevaced out of it. And I woke up in the helicopter and, and that was like my first kind of shocking medical trauma. So when I ended up going to the hospital for my appendicitis, I was familiar with the experience of not having any control or dignity. You know, something about the hospital process, your, your bits are going to fall out. You haven't shaved. Who cares? You're not going to wash your hair. It's just sort of like your body is this thing that you are now living for. It's all about your body doing its thing and your ego doesn't matter. Just throw it out the door. So I was able to adapt pretty well to the ICU unit because I had that experience of being shocked and doing that. And someone else might not. Like my dad had an event this, I guess, earlier this summer where he had problems breathing and he had to go to the hospital. And he sounded like the most miserable bear of a person on the phone. I like talked to him back in California and he couldn't stand being there for just a day. And I was like, I was in there 16 days. What are you talking about? Like, Put the gas mask on. He'll be fine. But to him, because of his disposition, it's a much harder experience. And I don't know. It's just weird. Like, what are all the factors that are going to determine who is who had it worse? Well, and that's, that's ultimately your pain is your pain, you know, and if you hurt more than me or less than me, that doesn't impact my pain and vice versa. You know, your experience is valid as it is. But I think that goes back to this feeling of like other people trying to own your experience. And so we feel often compelled to really crystallize and defend and guard the boundaries of this is where my trauma is and this is how bad it was and it was worse than yours and so you know or whatever like we get very defensive you know and I think that that's because other people do cut us down well and like when I see those conversations I can identify them really early on when they're happening and I don't have them like I just say oh okay you know I don't want to talk about it I don't want to get into this I also want to be I also know that person is going through their own processing and I don't want to, like, I want them to just live their life and be happy and God bless and whatever. I'm not religious, but I just felt like saying that. <laughs> but like, to me, it doesn't, like, I, I don't mind hearing these stories. Like I am, I am the friend who gets all the weird shots of people's healing body parts. Like you can talk to me about anything that's happening to your body. And I'm like, sweet. Like, let's tell me more. <laughs> like, I don't mind. And, and I, and my friends know that if you're in the hospital and something has to happen, you want me there. Cause I'm going to like make you laugh and be like, Ooh, I want to look. So like, that's fine. But I don't, yeah, I'd have no interest in, you know, especially cause I wouldn't wish my situation on anybody. I don't want to know who's had it worse. Like, I'm just like, it's all bad. Yeah. What, who cares? Who cares? We're all trying to get through it. You know, good luck to you. 
Yeah, there's something there. There is something there, though, about people feeling. I think they, it, legitimately, I feel like probably they've been belittled. They've been, you know, brushed off and poo-pooed by enough people in their lives that they become their illness or their, their trauma. Yeah. Well, and, like, I also feel like these, at the end of the day, these are all solo experiences, right? Like, no, like your ability to recover is about you. You're feeling the after effects. You have to motivate yourself to do the changes you need to do to either like go to physical therapy or change your diet or re-strength train or deal with your loss of muscle or deal with like, and that's, you can't give that to anybody and nobody in your immediate surroundings can alleviate that. Like that is a, a, a responsibility and a constant situation that you have to go through. And it's a very isolating experience. You're just a world of one doing this thing. So I often wonder too, like when people do this, like, is it a way to like reach out into the darkness and try to find that life preserver a little bit? Because it, it doesn't exist because at the end of the day, like you are the person in your body and whatever your body's doing, like, that's it. Like you have to deal with it. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting on, on one level, yeah, like nobody was with me through a lot of the stuff and I just had to, and I don't so much mean the procedures, although that was part of it, um, but also the nights after, the days yeah. after, you know, all of that. On the other hand, like I have a husband, I have four kids, mm. they've seen all of the shit, like m- my kids saw things I wish they'd never seen after I was recovering. Mm. and there are times where I look at them and I think, you know, I wonder if it was even harder on them than on me. Yeah. The role of caregivers. I had a thing thing to do. I had a thing and I could, I could definitely tell days were better or worse. And if it got worse, like you just roll with it after a while. Like you don't need to see progress you just need to see stasis some days or if you backslide you just need to not totally backslide you know like your your changes but for them they just they need so much to see their loved one not hurt yeah and it's hard because I think in my case like the loved ones who saw me saw me in the hospital and then they left and I was single living with a roommate in New York City where everyone doesn't have enough time to do anything anyway And that felt like a very, like, I guess in my case, nobody witnessed my recovery, that they witnessed the hospitalization uh, and maybe a little bit of the, like the direct days afterwards. Cause like I was so weak, I couldn't move back home because I lived in a four story walk up and I had to move to a basement in Brooklyn to strength train to be able to go home. But nobody witnessed anything after that. And also like New York, like I didn't have a car. I'm a pedestrian. I love that aspect. But like figuring out how to buy groceries and carrying them home was a big deal because I was so weak. And it was just me on my own, like my own little victory with the gallon of milk. Like, so yeah, I guess in my case, I think it felt especially no one was looking. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's really, you know, it's, I think, yeah, everybody walks their, their line the way they walk. And I, you know, I don't know the answer as far as like, what is harder? It's not harder. It's not easier. It's just different. It's just different. It's just a different experience, but it's all hard. 
I mean, you have to think about what your kids saw and be worried if they had it worse. Whereas I had to carry a gallon of stuff on my own and no one's like, you know what I mean? Like not to belittle either, but they're both very different worries and concerns and experiences and you can't compare them. I mean, you can compare them and how they're different, <laughs> but nobody's the winner or the loser in that situation. They're just plain old different. No, no, that's back to the misery competition. Like nobody, nobody wins. Yeah. So yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. What sorts of stories do you find like hit you more? doing the show because you're I mean you're potentially in ways I guess parallel to my show where there's times where I'm t- I, I tap into a nerve of my own that I need to be careful around do you find that happens to you my problem so I'm a writer and I am an obsessive writer I get really fixated on like big questions or scientific studies and I analyze the heck out of them I think my problem is I become obsessed with the themes of each episode after I, I recorded them. And, and if I record a lot of episodes, I find myself, my, my brain kind of gets like a pinball machine. Like I, and they're very, I talk to people about all sorts of things. So like, I remember when I launched, I launched the first four episodes and one was a sex tech entrepreneur whose moment was pitching her, her patented vibrator for the first time. The other was a woman who grew up in the segregated South and her mother died 60 years ago and she's still dealing with her death because she's African-American and her mother did not believe in segregate, uh, in equality. Uh, civil rights. And then as who, then I had a psychologist talking about the unconscious mind and then, and all of those ideas were ricocheting all the time in my head. And it kind of drove me nuts because I was like, this is, these are too many big themes and topics to think about. Uh, so I don't, it does nothing. I, I haven't found anything that's really like struck a nerve per se, but it all, every episode really triggers my writer mind. And it makes me obsess about the topic and look at it in real life and see if I can find it and where do I relate to that. And I get obsessive and trying to understand it <laughs> further. <laughs> they don't, what makes them fade then? Like what, just, just the new topic bumps the old one out or? Yeah, I have to, or else I'll go crazy. Not, I shouldn't use that term lightly, but like I, 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 it's I, a thing. I, I mean, trust me. No, no, I know. And I don't want to belittle that experience. And yeah, I just have to keep, I, I've had to, cause I've all, you know, being a, a playwright and a writer, I can like, I just wrote something on world war one and I obsessed about world war one for three years and I finally finished the play, uh, doing a serial project where it has to come out every week. I've had to train my mind to just let things go. Like once the episode is out, just let it go because you can't retain it. Cause there is, you know, you're preparing for other episodes. So I've just tried to psych myself out and just let it flow. Um, almost in a way, let my mind treat it like a museum experience. So what I'm hearing is you don't think about me anymore at all. No, you do. You're, I think yours was. I'm kidding. My, I'm kidding. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, no, no, no. Yours. I remember. I, I had done your episode, and I have uh, my friend who's probably going to listen to this. She's like my medical curiosity buddy. Uh, both in that we both like we went to the what is it, the Mutter Museum in Philly a couple right. weekends ago, uh, but also she's had a lot of medical events happen to her. And when I told her your story, I was like, "This is haunting." Like the the the. the the level of impact and negligence is haunting. It's terrifying. And, uh, and so you're stuck with me a while because 
I had themes like that in my experiences, but yours was to a degree that was really unnerving um, because of what, how, how drastically it did change your life in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, I even talked to, I talked to a quad amputee who was shot in a robbery and she lost all of her limbs uh, based off of that. And, and I, I think your story haunted me more than her talking about her life after her amputations. But I don't know. It's all relative. Well, I mean, they were trying to be, me to be just a dick about it. So sorry. No, no, it's true. But <laughs> I, I, I will say I do find myself very excited when someone comes on with a medical story uh, because that's a shared universe. And I'm always interested to see how they're doing. And I'm really curious about like personalities and what pushes people through. Like I remember I asked the quad amputee, her name is Julie Dombo. She's amazing. And I asked her if there was anything about her personality that surprised her during her experience. And she said, no, cause I knew exactly who I was before. And that was a very shocking statement. Cause usually you assume people will say, well, I didn't realize how brave I was, or I didn't realize my ability to deal with pain, or I didn't realize how much my family loved me. But she was so like, I knew who I was going in and I'm going to try to stay that person going out because he can't take away my personality. I will not let the perpetrator do that. And I thought that was shocking and so amazing, <laughs> amazing statement. But I, I do have a, a, a special place in my heart for medical stories. Well, they're, they're oddly... They, they loom for everybody. I think that's part of the problem with the medical stuff is that it's potentially arbitrary. It, you know, it, you talk about a reason for everything. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I gave birth in a yeah. clean, well-lit, first-world hospital. You know, I was following my doctor's advice to the letter. Yeah. And and yet, you know, and, and I think that's people tend to have these medical... Well, the, you know, the, the randomness of it, like you can be in the same house with six, yeah. everybody gets the flu and only two get like gravely ill, that kind of thing. There's a, there's a randomness to it that is yeah. terrifying. And there's, and there's a similarity in the stories. Like everyone has this eerie buildup there, you know, something went wrong. They realized something was wrong. They realized people around them realized something was wrong. There's the reaction to it being wrong, that there, it's this, it's this, it's, it's, almost like this mystery when people tell their medical stories it's like a mystery story like it starts off with everything was fine and then something went off kilter and and they kind of just draw you in you know because you're wondering well like what happened like what's the next step and the suspense story um and they all have that kind of similarity the suspense to it um yeah yeah i don't know they're weird it, well, it is, and you know, and people fascinate me just in, yeah, in what trauma is to how someone defines trauma, because uh-huh. I've had at least a couple of people, and I will not name names, so <laughs> yell there, you're safe, whoever you might be, <laughs> that they define themselves as having survived trauma, and I'm like, that wasn't trauma. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, there are some some experiences where I'm like. Not really. Not so much. Like, I'm glad that it wasn't trauma. Like, let me be clear on that. Like, I don't want anybody else to go through a traumatic experience. But, 
and that's to me, it's, I don't know how to explain it because it's not me trying to belittle their life. Like your life matters to you because it's what you went through and that's valid enough as it is. It, but trauma has a definition. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like the same? Like, I feel like now I'm not someone who's trained in any clinical psychology or anything like that, but I feel like the word PTSD gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm often like, how do you know if you weren't diagnosed and why does everyone say they have aspects of PTSD now? Like, is that kind of the same thing? Like you don't, you, mm, mm-hmm. well, I don't I mean, know, post-traumatic stress disorder, like part of PTSD, part of the diagnostic criterion, one of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD is that you have to survive trauma, which is a thing. It's a specific yeah, it, yeah. event is just defined as a belief or perceived belief in actual or credible threat to your life. Okay, so it has to have been that serious. A lifetime of emotional abuse is not trauma. You can have a PTSD-like that immediate of a threat. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it has to be a moment. Trauma is a or an accumulated threat. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so somebody can accidentally push you down the stairs once, like literally accidentally nudge you wrong and you fall down the stairs, but then for years later, they think it's funny every time they go near you to sort of jump scare you when you're near the stairs that can accumulate into trauma. A parent continually raising their fist to a child's face because your fist is about the same size as a child's face that can create a trauma. Mm. Um, Arguably sexual abuse can create a trauma because it's, a perceived threat to who you are, to who you fundamentally define yourself as and where your boundaries are. So like, you know, it, it doesn't yeah, necessarily yeah. If, if you're of actual death, but of complete loss of self. Yeah. You know? And so, but I will hear people who will be like, Oh, well, I, my parents argued my whole childhood. And so I have trauma. I'm like, mm, no, like, no, uh, you know, and, and it's, it, I'm not sorry. Like, you don't want trauma. Please trust me when I say yeah. this is not. <laughs> even, even, yeah, no, totally. I mean, even I remember, like, like I've always identified as a trauma-obsessed writer. Like, I'm always fascinated in, like, destroying my characters and seeing if they survive and, and big cataclysmic events and stuff. But even with my own trauma, I still don't know. Like, I still feel like I don't know if I have trauma. Because I don't know if it's, I, I don't, I just, because I feel nervous about using the word out of respect for people who have trauma, but I think I'm probably in that group, but like I, I still, I mean, but okay, so have, you don't have trauma. Or I went through trauma. You experience it. Yes, yes, yes. Private. And so object, it, it's, a, it's sort of a semi-objective thing. Like psychology yeah. is tricky in that we, we, we're a pain in the ass and we don't do a whole lot in the way of objectivity, but, <laughs> but there is a, there's an a degree of objectivity to was this life threatening or did you believe it was life threatening at the time? And so had at least two major medical incidents that were objectively traumatic. Yes, they were, you know? And and so therefore now, does that mean you have PTSD? No, no, I don't. Yeah. And that's syndrome. Yeah, no. And I would, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not aware of anything like that. You no. may or may not. You know, not everybody does. And that's one of the magic. <laughs> about yeah. 
you know, is that well, totally like, uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting for me. Like I can go back to the emergency room and I can point to you to the spot where I was sitting when I knew I was dying. Yeah. Like, that's where yeah. I was when I knew for yeah. sure that nobody was going to get me out of this and I was going to die. Like in my brain, that's what yeah. was happening. And I can walk right by that with no problem. I've had to have my kids in the ER. I had to take my father to the ER several times in the year and a half that he was living with us. No problem. Cool, cool. But if I have to walk by there when I'm unwell, and I frequently am, I look at that spot and I get a jolt. Mm. And I get this spike of anxiety and I will very quickly lose my ability to accurately assess the danger in, in the situation. Yeah. So, you know, it's very specific. It's not just being in that place, but being in that mindset as well. Yeah. I have a couple of those odd triggers after that event. And, you know, but that's the, like, so that's the word triggers. The use of it, it's not so much the use of it that bothers me as the backlash to it. People who act like, oh, only the snowflakes have triggers. I'm like, fuck that. Oh, everything that's a trigger. <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's a real thing. It's a, a trigger. Yeah, it's a real, it's a yeah. It's a real thing. Yeah, it's and, a real thing. And you can have that without, you know, so PTSD is a, it's a, I'll go into the whole diagnostic thing, is that, okay, first of all, you have to have trauma. Mm-hmm. And so you can have been in a low-speed car accident, but. If your airbag deployed or just you believed you were about to die, that may be trauma to you, right? Even if it wasn't life-threatening. But if you believe it was, it also can apply to a loved one. You can have trauma based on your mother was in a car accident three states away. But if you're very close with your mother and you believed she was going to die, that because what that does is it creates a vulnerability. It creates like a crack in your world. Yeah. And so that's part one. It's like you have to have that. And then from there, PTSD is it's a two-part diagnosis. Okay, I guess three if you say like there has to, stage one is you have to have trauma. And then there's two pieces to it. And the one is a, an anxiety that is sort of constant pervasive like Eeyore, like an Eeyore cloud overhead yeah. all the time, this pervasive dread but it'll spike into active panic and anxiety yes at at minimal sort of sorts of experiences like I you know I had PTSD from a sexual assault when I was very young and for a long time I struggled so the assault happened in the woods outside Mm -hmm. so I could not go out and look at sunlight coming through the trees that was a very yeah. bad, big, bad thing. But also sort of a secondary thing that would happen is if I was in a room with a fan, a ceiling fan that made the lights flicker, that would bother me. And I would become hypervigilant. I would become cert- like jumpy mm. and I would become like physically overreactive. So if you were huh. to tap me on the shoulder, I'd punch you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just terrified and, and hyperventilating, you know, all of the things. So, yeah. so a sense of danger that is disproportionate to the actual circumstance circumstance or, or that you're in front of. And so stimulus, yeah. you, you constantly have this feeling like something's going to happen and you have a series of a progression of thoughts that leads to, and I'm going to die. Like that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is not just, Oh, I'm nervous about a test. It's 
It's that, it's that increased, it's that next step, which well, is it's, it's a, a direct yeah, it's threat to my call. livelihood. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And, and it can mean as simple as they're going to, that person looked at me funny. And so they're going to laugh at me and I'm going to lose all my friends. And then I'm going to lose my ability to go out in public and I'm going to lose my ability to hold down a job and I'm going to lose all my money and my family. Yeah. 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 It's die. snowballs. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. always that catastrophizing. It's always the nth degree. And that sort of can be there all the time but yeah learn how to function through that they sort of you know eeyore right learn to live with mm-hmm. a cloud over his head and he learned to make friends and he learned to, to function and then the panic is the more immediate trigger where you just tip over like you're not functioning anymore you just bleh, right so yeah that's one half of ptsd and the other half is like a memory disorder yes so mm-hmm. trauma memories are fundamentally different than normal memories. So for one, they're crystallized. Yeah. Um, they're clearer than other memories. Yeah. They're, they're sharper. They're brighter. They're in HD, right, when everything else is not. Um, they are more durable than other memories um, in that you might forget – what you had for dinner the night before you speak, you know, like what you had for dinner last night, you might forget your fourth grade teacher's name, but you will always remember what color the baseball cap was on the helicopter pilot that day. Right. Like whatever it is like those, they're details that stand out that are durable in a way that other things are not. Um, They are. And another thing about trauma memories is that there are sometimes flashbulb memories they're called where you just, picture a second, like a split second image, but more often they're like narrative memories. They're like a movie and you mm-hmm. get thrown back into that movie. And the extra thing about trauma memories is that they are like a whole body, whole body sensory feeling that suddenly, oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I hear it, I feel it, I smell it, I taste it. I am, I am reliving this and you don't get to stop the movie. You don't get to pause it. It becomes immersive and you just have to keep breathing through it till Mm -hmm. it plays out. And that can appear in nightmares. That's what flashbacks are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and and that can happen kind of any time, sometimes related to the anxiety and sometimes with no apparent trigger, right? With no apparent Mm. in the world, suddenly you're in the middle of it, you know? And so, that's what PTSD is. And those are the, like, it's a serious motherfucking problem. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't think you can, I don't think you can, I mean, it sounds like, like when I hear people say that term there, I try and identify like low level anxiety or, or anxiety that doesn't reach the level that you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's a much bigger deal to have PTSD, obviously. Right. And, and so yeah. people who are like, who's, they almost act like they want to have had it. Well, I just don't think, they, I don't think they quite understand the real implications of it and how difficult it is. Um, exactly. Think- well, exactly. And that's like, I understand that they think that they do. And I even sympathize to a degree. Like, if you've never had a migraine, you might not, you might think a normal headache feels like a migraine. 
Yeah, true. You like you just don't you don't have the, and that's part of why we have diagnosticians out in the world is because like yeah, they can tell you ah uh, no listen this is what you have exactly <laughs> yeah no I've always been very wary of using any terms because I didn't I'm aware of people who are dealing with some very serious issues and I I just wasn't clear if I was on that same plane or not and I didn't want to I don't know in a weird way like offend people who really had to deal with something much worse than me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just never felt, yeah. I didn't want to self-diagnose, I guess. (laughs) Because real diagnoses happen. (laughs) You know, is that, so, I mean, if that sounds familiar, like in part, then you can have features of PTSD without having the full shebang. Yeah. I mean, I never had, Uh, yeah, I never had like severe anxiety. I, I can viscer. I can remember exactly moments, like for sure. Like the moment I realized I was dying, I was on a stretcher by myself in the ER. My aunt had gone to get some water, and I was in so much pain I couldn't talk. Like to talk to extend my stomach was just like impossible, and I couldn't move. Like, and I remember uh, I had been in shock after the car accident, so I knew what it was to like jump up and down on a table uncontrollably. And I just got this, I was hooked up to a morphine pump and I just got this horrible feeling all of a sudden and the morphine stopped working. I was in so much pain that I just crescendoed past the morphine and I started shaking up and down and I knew I was in shock and I couldn't yell for help. So I was just kind of like a fish on this table waiting for someone to notice me. And that's the moment where I was like, oh, this is why people are so freaked out. You aren't sick. You are dying. Like, this is what's happening. Your your organs are shutting down. Like, um, and I did the whole, like, I had to replay my life in my head because it didn't happen on its own. (laughs) There was no, like, montage of Angela. (laughs) And I said, then I was like, okay, review your life. What are you thinking? (laughs) Like, is this okay? Uh, So I can remember that very well. I can remember waking up in the helicopter. I can remember uh, getting stitches in my eye after the car accident, I can remember getting wheeled down to the OR. Like I remember everything. And, and for me, I find what I find triggering is locations and uh, scents. Mm-hmm. Like I really hate the smell of uh, rubbing alcohol. Uh, cotton gauze, don't like it. If I ever have to smell the industrial towels they use at a hospital, I'm going to hurl. Like, I hate that smell. God, I hate that smell. That, like, cardboardy. I don't know if that's what they used with you, but in the hospital in New York, they had these, like, disposable mega paper towels that they would give you out of the bathroom, like, out of a shower. Ugh. Ugh. In my nightmares, I smell those towels. I cannot handle it. And I remember the wound back changes. I remember seeing my insides. I remember, like, very visceral things. And I also remember also, like, some very touching moments. You know, I remember like holding my mom's hand in the ICU and seeing her for the first time after she came on a red eye from JF from LAX to JFK. Like I remember my high school crush somehow hearing that I was in a car accident and remember hearing the telephone ring in my, you know, hospital room at UCLA and being like, Oh, he's on the phone. He wants to know how you are. (laughs) I was like, maybe we'll get married. Like, (laughs) Yeah, I remember all that stuff and 
And I think if anything, I, that's the problem I've had is like existential crisis and dread, <laughs> which I don't know if that's cause, if that relates to anxiety, but I think I've had a lot of like, what are you supposed to do with your life now? And are you happy to have a life? Like I had you know. such survivor guilt. Yeah. That, you know, just a, you know, that whole, why me? Why not? Why not me? You know, why would I survive? And the other, you know, and part of the challenge was I, I told you the statistics on mine. That, yeah. Yeah. That you that, were a rarity. You know, most people die and it happens that, you know, so two people a year survive what I did. And one loses all four limbs and one walks away. And I happen to have been in touch with the husband of the woman who lost all four limbs. And her name was Kate also. Oh my God. And that messed with me for a long time. It just, it was her third baby too. Mm, too many similarities. They did every, I mean, hers was a home birth. And so there's a lot of doubt and questioning with them about, did that create the problem? And I was like, uh, uh-uh, you know, no, mine was in an excellent facility as far as I knew. And, um, and yeah. so there's just this complicated experience of, of, somewhat about what am I supposed to do with my life now, but more about like, why bother? Why bother? Like so many people die and all of this money and effort has been spent on me. And, and I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not, Hmm. you know, it was a real, I don't know. For me, I felt like what was worth the extra time, like that there had to be something greater or something like, like I had to achieve or do something that was worth the extra time I happened to gain by whatever factors that were and were not out of my, were out of my control, like whatever had happened. Um, and not being able to like, like I lost my, my motivation for my career after that event. Like I just, it came out with a different brain, different outlook, and I could not be the self-sacrificing New York artist that I was supposed to be. Like there's a version of me that's living somewhere who's getting produced all the time and is teaching at a college. And who knows, maybe I'll still do that one day, but she's not in this body anymore at the moment. And that was very, very hard. Cause like I wanted to do greater and bigger things because I felt like I had to, that would like, that is the direct outcome of something like this. And then the things that I was doing, I could not relate to anymore. So I just felt like totally, lost and and not sure what I was supposed to do. Like, why do I have this extra time? Um, but I, you know, and I did recently start therapy. I started therapy a year ago. I knew at one point the trauma was going to like really come up and reel its head. And I was aware of that. And so I was always waiting. I was like waiting for like the big depressive moment or, or something. And it happened last fall. So right away, like I contacted my friend who's a psychologist and I was like, it's here. It's arrived. Right. <laughs> I need to go in. And my therapist brought up a really good point, which is like, you know, we all have this motivating factor of one day it's going to end, but it's like in a fear. It's like a, it's just a, a cloud, you know, that's kind of like what ephemeral cloud. But when you actually get too close to it, it isn't a barometer to live your life by because you know too much and you can't judge all your actions based on, I almost died. One day I'm going to die again. What am I going to do in the meantime? Like it's not a good way to base your decisions. Um, 
And when she said that, I was like, that's so true. Cause nothing I do feels like enough because what is supposed to be enough like, to, to, I don't know, to honor that experience or this yeah. extra time. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I think we're saying similar things, this idea of like, how, why not me? How can I earn it? Like I'm not special yeah. because I, I feel like I should have been special in order to deserve still being alive in order to, you know, somehow I should, I I'm supposed to, I, you know, a lot of that stuff. And for me, it took about for this one, for this event, uh, getting, getting sick in 2010, it took about two years and I was in, I, it's always stories with me, right? I was in my, my kids, uh, well, vis- well, child checkup. So mm. he was turning two. And so March is always difficult for me anyway. It just pulls mm. up right, you know, right around my son's birthday is also when I died basically. And that's very, it just evocative for me in many ways. And I tend to go into a fairly dark depression every year and I know it's coming and I can't seem to stave it off anyway. But so I had him in for his, well child checkup and like I mean this didn't make it all better let's be clear like I stayed in a very dark way for probably seven years eight years Mm -hmm. after but at this point I was in a particularly difficult spot and my son had a new pediatrician who I said something about his birth and about how his he was fine and I was not and the doctor looked at me goes oh you're the one Oh yeah, that's when you know you're a bad case. Oh, <laughs> the hospital knows you, right? And, but I had in that moment, yeah. I was like, you know, fuck this, I am done. You don't want to be known the as girl a girl who almost died. Yep, yep. I'm done being the sick one. I am done being like I, I'm okay with having been broken. I was. I'm okay to a degree with not having the life I, I planned on having. Yeah. Like, but I, but only if you let me let it go, I have to stop comparing myself to what I was and what I had. And I need to start being good enough is who I am. And that includes, I had some major personality changes Yeah. after, and I would watch it. I would say something. And I would watch my husband or my sister or whatever do like a double take and look at me funny. And I would know that's not how their Kate would respond. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time faking, trying to be the person that they thought I would be because I felt like if I faked it long enough, I would make it right. I would get there. And so I spent about two years like really struggling to hold myself up to previous standards both personality wise and physically and when this doctor said this well oh you're the one I was like you know what I'm done I cannot do this anymore and I didn't mean like I'm done with life or whatever I meant I'm no, no, yeah, yeah. done with this process of grieving and holding myself to this motherfucking standard that is never going to happen it's done she's dead that woman's dead I will never be able to work in the locked facilities that I used to work in, in the same way, because I'm physically incapable. Yeah. But I, I, I might be able to go back to work doing some other stuff if I stop dwelling on how sick I was. Yeah. And so I went home and not the same day I had to mull over it for a while, but I ended up writing like 40 copies of the same letter and I hand wrote them all. 
to my friends and my loved ones and, you know, people who'd sat by my bedside or anybody who sort of had touched my life since then. And I wrote about how I need to not be sick anymore. I need to stop thinking of myself as that way. So I need you to handwrite one word that makes you think of my recovery mm-hmm. instead of my illness. And they did. I got all kinds of words back. And some of them are fucking hilarious. And others, <laughs> and, you know, just all these different words. You know, the, the, like my kid did it. So some of them are in like childlike handwriting and just whatever. I, you know, and I made them into a long strip. And that's one mm. of my tattoos. Is it wraps around my ankle several times. Oh, no way. And it is these words. And it's so that I have a physical, visual, tangible reminder that I got better, that I recovered, and that there, yeah. is, there are things about me that are not sick. Yeah. And that I can start building a self. And that it's okay, you know, if, I, if, my, if people give me a double take because that's not how their Kate would have answered, she's dead and I'm sorry. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And you have, and you have bigger fish to fry. You have yeah. a new life to live. Yeah, that just reminds me really quick. Uh, I So it took me five years to identify no longer as sick, even though I left the hospital with just long-term recovery, personal recovery stuff. Um, and I used to, I celebrate my diversity, I call it. <laughs> so the day of the surgery, I have to do something extremely physical I have to eat good food and I have to do something I've never done before in my life. And uh, year three, I got a tattoo and um, she doesn't have a meaning when I got her. I just wanted something pretty on my body because all I have gained are scars. And I just like the idea that I could put something that was art and it's a diving woman. It's like a retro diving woman, but she's become this thing that's reminding me like, there's no need to be afraid. You've been through worse. Just jump, just try things, just stretch your boundaries, figure out whatever you want. Like all you have in front of you are possibilities, you know? Um, but this past year, I think it was my last diversity celebration Cause I was like, you know, I'm tired. I'm done. I don't want to be the sick person anymore. I don't want that to be part of my story. That was my story. Like I'm ready to move on. So that felt good. (laughs) Can't even remember what I did. Oh, I went antiquing upstate. I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) Where did you go upstate? Where did I go? This, I can't remember the town. It was kind of by um, Beacon. It was like a, 45 minutes up with this really cute, old-looking town with lots of Victorians. So not, to- not really upstate then. It's what you you and the city. It's what I consider. It's like, it's like right by New Paltz, so it kind of yeah, counts. It's, it's like the verge of, ish. you know, I rented a car. The year before, I'd never made bread, so I made five different kinds of breads all at the same day, which was insane. Bob could take so long. I did not know that. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I've, I've done, yeah, the tattoo. I've done uh, a lobster dinner was one of them. Um, yeah, simple stuff. I'm, you know, I'm an artist in New York City who's now transitioning to starting her own company. So I don't have a lot of money at my disposal. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was good to be done with that. Are you are you able to talk about what your sort of 
how you knew it was time to go into therapy? Is it the same? Sure. No, when I went into, so I had been, uh, it was weird. I was kind of dating somebody. Now these, I don't know what people say is dating. What's not dating. Some people say dating is too, too serious of a term. And I'm like, if we go out for a drink multiple times, we're dating. Like if I sleep with you and we go out for drinks, we're dating. Like, I don't understand. Like you're we're, we're probably dating multiple people. Anyway, he, it had ended badly, but it wasn't even a relationship or anything like that. And I really wasn't so invested in it, but I just found myself unable to get off the couch. And I had never reacted to a breakup like that. And he definitely did not require or merit an experience like that. And I was severely sad all the time for like a month. And I would cry randomly, like at the grocery store or at the gym. And that's when I realized like he was the straw that broke the camel's back, but he was not the camel. That that was just like kind of my my threshold was reached and that it was all this other stuff underneath that had just kind of boiled up. And that's when I was like, oh, time to go. Like, he's a symptom, but he's not the the diagnosis, I guess. The cause. <laughs> yeah. He's not I mean, the cause. That, that sounds very sort of PTSD-ish-esque. Oh. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like to have that sort of emotional, not necessarily anxious, but overwhelmed reaction to something that doesn't necessarily... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, and I'm all about, um, like if you have health, enjoy the hell out of it and maintain it. Cause you never know when you're going to get sick and you want to be healthy when you, you get sick and mental health is the same. Like when I started seeing that go bad, I was like, I, I want my health. Like I want, I, I want to take this head on and, and see this. And I had never been to therapy therapy for our accident. Um, uh, I had a traumatic brain injury from that and, but it, it didn't, I never had an episode where, where I needed, I don't know, where I never thought I needed help. Um, so yeah, so I charged right in. I found myself a therapist pretty soon after that. And I was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> I, 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 you know, life's too short not to be healthy. And you and you're never perfect, but try for it. Yeah. So that's what happened there. <laughs> and I later told him, I thanked him. I said, you know, the asshole ways you were, the, the horrible things you said to me the last time we saw each other led me to therapy. And I thank you so much. Cause like I really I I'm so glad it I'm finally at a point where I have to deal with all of it. And it's at the surface, it's not these meandering, weird come and go thoughts or, or feelings or that it's all there and it's ready to just, I can charge into it and talk about it and deal with it. Yeah. Which is an amazing fuck you. I mean, well, and he was like, I'm glad you're getting help. <laughs> and I was like, me too. No, I really was. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that like that that I'm able to get the help and whatever. So. It was still a really good fuck you. Like I, Oh, you think I didn't even mean it like that. I'm so like blunt and just like to the point. I'm like, whatever. Uh, this is what happened to me since I've last seen you. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's what happened. And that was last this past fall. So now it's a year almost in therapy. Um, and yeah, realizing that like just my trajectory has been accidental body trauma. And that's been the, the con the, if I'm a magnet for anything, it's accidental body trauma and medical emergencies. <laughs> uh, as my dad says, every 13 years, I like to scare the shit out of everyone. So get ready, guys. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I don't know what's coming up in, in what, year nine, uh, year seven, <laughs> seven years from now. <laughs> but, uh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I know. I think that's a good place to stop the recording part. Okay. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? I told you I was going to make you cry. I didn't mean to. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be talking about my mother. I know. I know. Well, it's so sad. I went to, um, I don't think this should be included because I didn't know this person, but my medical trauma friend, she had a friend who recently passed away suddenly for no reason, for just out of nowhere at 35. And it was really like, I always said the reason why I was glad I didn't die was because my parents didn't have to go through that. And of all the things I was concerned about, and it was really like overwhelming to, I joined my friend for that funeral because I didn't want her, it was in Virginia. She had to drive. I didn't want her to do it alone. So I didn't know the girl, but seeing her parents there Mm -hmm. at the celebration of life. And she was like, about my age and I was like oh this I couldn't like handle it like it was really overwhelming to see parents grieve mm-hmm. their 30 something daughter from a random medical event I was like even my parents and that's the thing that gets me like I don't like thinking about that like John and Enza yeah. deserve better <laughs> I don't I don't look at my like my parents that way I mean my parents are assholes and that is what it is like it's not that I think that they deserved anything one way or the other. I'm not big on deserve, you know? Yeah. But, but it, so it's more just like, eh. but for me, I get it <clears throat> when I look at kids that lose their parents. Oh, you know what I mean? Sense. And there were, there were a lot of times when it would have been easy to just let go to just, I mean, I started, I started, I was firmly on the way to suicide one night, Thanksgiving yeah. night of 2010. And, you know, it, it, it was having children that reminded me, like, this will get better. And even if it doesn't get better, I don't need to make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, I th- like, what did my friend who's a, a psychologist, she was like, you know, if I, if I hear a patient say they have a cat that they love, I know they're not going to do it. Right. You know, if you have somebody who you look to, you're like, I want to be accountable to you, your livelihood and your health and your, um, your possibilities are more important than this impulse I have. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I would talk to people like, I don't care if it's a house plant. I don't care if it's a yeah. book you feel like you have to finish reading. I don't care if it's a grocery list you have to finish writing. Yeah. Do a thing, be accountable to a thing and, and, and ride through it because that impulse is fundamentally irrational. You know, that, that, well, it's, and it's, and it's an impulse. It's not, yeah. It's it's not like some people live in like a, like a passively suicidal mindset, Mm -hmm. but that action is like rationality is all fundamentally about keeping the body alive. Yeah. 
That's why we think. That's why we interact with other humans. That's why we don't play with fire. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what rationality is. And so suicide or passive or active, that's irrational. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into that headspace, it is what it is, and it sucks. But you need to not act on those thoughts because you have to understand that the people around you are rational. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. that you matter to somebody. Yeah. You know, and that's what you need to hang on to is that you matter more to somebody else than you do to yourself. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad you, you know, well, I'm not glad you have to get surgery or whatever on yeah, Friday. Yeah, constantly. <laughs> and I hope I didn't offend you by saying your story like stuck with me and haunted me. Oh, no, that's me. fine. I was, just, I was trying to be an asshole. Like, oh, yeah. So no, but it, it was true. I would, I would say like yours and like, yeah, and the gunshot victim. There are just elements in there that I'm just like, I find you both remarkable and like inspiring is such a cliche word that really kind of means nothing, but like I have a lot of respect and, and yeah, for those stories. You know, that's the kind of thing. Like I accept it, but I, you know, I always get like, so I have it not so much for, you know, I, I stutter over it because it's a hard concept for me. Like you would sit in the same thing. You are also inspiring. Yeah. And it is, some, but like, it sits uncomfortably because it's like, look, all I did was keep breathing. Well, but, and also like, I think it's inspiring because like, yeah, you kept breathing, you had a lot to do and it's affected your life in many ways, but it's really inspiring to see you connecting to like, like you talking about that it led to this podcast and that this podcast is actively connecting to people in a very real way and giving them platforms or a way to connect that they're not alone in whatever they're going through or experiencing or seeing like that's, it seems, and I know that's kind of the work you probably were doing before. Like, I think you could basic clinician stuff and mm-hmm. that there, <laughs> that DNA is still there and it's, it's part of the podcast, but like you didn't, you didn't, you ended up reaching out and wanting to impact the world in a different way. And like, you definitely are impacting an audience that's really gaining a lot. And I think that's great. Like, I think that's inspiring. Um, Cause lots of people can go lots of different ways with these kind of events. No, for sure. And I think that's part of it yeah. is knowing that I did. I did go lots of different ways. I did. Yeah, but you're here now. Time, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. I guess everybody walks their path. And, you know, we get, yeah. we get similar. My husband and I get a similar reaction about being so great because we adopted our youngest. And it's like, well, okay, but. Who would, who wouldn't? Yeah. It's like, that wasn't your, that wasn't your motivating factor to doing that was to be like, I'm going to be so great. I'm exactly. This. I mean, that wasn't my motivating factor in living. Yeah. It's it, it just, it, so the fact that it ends up looking great, looking inspiring, looking whatever, like cool, cool. That's, that's lovely. But. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, no, and I think I, I, I uh, one episode I talked to the, a woman. Uh, she lost her husband at thirty to brain cancer on her thirtieth birthday, mm-hmm. um, and like she's become a nomad. Just she was an actor at the time. She didn't know what to do with her life afterwards, and now ten years later, she's been nomadic, and she doesn't think she lives an epic life <laughs> because it's her day to day life. But I think the thing about time and perspective, it's like you can see how like that one choice 
actually looking back at it. But when you're getting through your day-to-day stuff, you know, you can't really, you don't have that perspective. You just keep um, swimming. Yeah. Cause you just, you know, you have daily battles you're trying to do and, but you know, at some point you're going to look back and be like, oh, I was insane. That's amazing. <laughs> I went through all that and I ended up there like, hell yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Well, I mean, you do, or you like, I don't know. I guess I feel like. Well, that's if that's the good part of the story or I, that's I a good outcome, just, you know? You know, either way, I, th- I feel like people just, it, it's whether or not you put uh, that sense of value on what you come through and yeah, and yeah, you can't. Sometimes it's just like, look, fuck it all. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, cause I knew there was, I was always, I wanted to recover well. Like I was always super conscious of like, I did not want to hurt my body anymore. So like, I didn't like, I had impulses to drink and do stuff. But I was like, you know, she's been through enough. We're going to run. <laughs> like, yeah. like I want to have the healthiest recovery possible. I'm not going to put myself in jeopardy. Some people do and some people have to and some people it's just. No, I totally yeah. did. I totally went down that route. I mean, because I didn't, I couldn't leave the house for nine months. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. I get it. No judgment on my, you know, no. I mean, I get it. From there, I went into some very dark ways and some very dark habits and in, in, in bad choices and so, I don't know, there's just feel like the the idea of like the nobility of rising above. It's like, no, I just, I nope. live long enough to find a different way through it. No, but, but you still, but like, but you still, you got through it and you followed an impulse that led you to this kind of work. Like, I think. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, and that's yeah. better, you know, and, and so I look at both, like, if I guess like, here's another way of saying it. When I look at people in homeless shelters, in prison, mm-hmm. in psych hospitals, who almost all of them went through shit. Yeah. And they their their path took that turn instead of this turn. Right. And so I look at them and I feel like shit, you know, yeah, you can get overwhelmed and bad things happen and I don't judge you for ending up here. Like sometimes no. I'll judge you for the things that you did. Because, you know, killing someone is bad. Yeah. Okay. But you're still a human being. And so it's not my job to judge your fundamental humanity. I can look and say you did a bad thing, but you're still a decent human being in there somewhere. And let's, let's find a way to, yeah, to get better, to be better. So if I can't judge that, then I don't feel like I have any right or reason to judge to praise. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like just that it's, it's about to me for, for who I am to avoid placing value and weight in either direction. Yeah. That, make, that makes sense. And just cause I'm not very optimistic. Like I'm a total saint. <laughs> and that's where it comes from. But I think you, but I think like, like, I also think like, like just like you're saying, like, I can judge the deed, but I'm not going to judge your humanity. I think you can take a comment like what you're doing is inspiring, but 
that element is inspiring, but you are still a person who's doing other things, right? you know, that have like other judgments or non-judgments or realities to that. Like you, you're, you are not a monolith of inspiration. Like that's because I don't want to be, there's a, there's a weight to that. There's a, no, but, but I'm saying, but like, like I get that too, just as simple as there's a couple of podcasters, like the, the woman from New Zealand, right. That, that has done the opening. Heather is a sweetheart. She really is, but she's a human being. Like I've heard her say fuck, you know, things like Yeah, that. yeah, no, totally. And there are, we have a couple of friends in common, including one who has a wicked, wicked crush on her, like unhealthy mm-hmm. crush. <laughs> he's married, she's married. And so, you know, and they're not, neither of them are poly as far as I understand. So he's just got this thing for her. And I've asked him about it before because I ask people things. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of times where I get real deep in conversation, as you may have picked up, I get real deep, real quick in conversations and I'll do the same in friendships. Like I, yeah, yeah. In. if we're, if we're friends, like I love with my whole heart and that means I get yeah disappointed with my whole heart too, if things get fucked up or whatever. But, but part of it is that like the number of people, I cannot get over the number of people in, especially podcasters, mostly because that's just the populations where I'm pulling new friends from lately. Mm-hmm. Who tell me I'm boring. I'm not me that I am boring, but that they are boring. They're speaking to me saying, Kate, I'm boring. I don't have anything. Oh, see, I hate when people say that no. because no, everyone's inherently a character. Well, everybody's got something. Yes. And it's just about asking the right questions or maybe yes. asking the, the direct questions or asking the same question until they give up and be like, fine, I'll fucking tell you, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. And so the flip side of that for this guy is that he talks about her as though she's so nice. She's so nice. I just, she's so nice. And I'm like, nice is boring. Nice is banal. There's nothing like nice is not. If that's, if that's all she's got going for, he's like, well, she's also got a nice voice and a nice accent. I'm like, but that's not the human being. You don't have a thing for the human. You just want an accent. <laughs> exactly. You want, the, you want the voice and the accent. And her show is very earthy, crunchy. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, so like, it's not my thing. Like, it's very meditative. And, yeah. you know, back to nature and existential humanistic therapy, that kind of thing. Which is lovely for her. It's just not my, like, I'm a, I'm a shitty therapist. I'm a shitty client. So it's fine. But, um, but he's so like into how nice she is. And I mentioned once, like, do you know, she's married? Do you you know, do you know she's married? He's like, oh yeah, I never asked. I'm like, do you know if she has any children? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, he's just crushing. Exactly. But I'm like, that's the thing is that like, there's more to her. She's more three dimensional than that. And so it's fine to crush. Like that's what I say is he's got this wicked crush on her. But I'm like, that's not a friend. You know, don't call her your friend. Because that's not what friends do. Like friends bother to get to know all of the layers and the warts and all. And friends ask, how are you doing every day or every, you know, whatever. They keep, yeah, they, they're, they're invested in your journey and they check in and yeah. And they don't, they they won't get shrugged off if you're in a pissy mood and yeah, like, I don't know. It's just interesting to me. I went very isolated for quite a while, like for seven years. I really didn't go out of the house very much. Except, you know, the, the dropping the kids off at school or going to CVS or whatever. Like, but I didn't engage with people very deeply. And 
I didn't have a whole ton of friends. Just I was in a dark way. And when I started the show, I started, I didn't start the show to make friends. I started the show just to start the show. And the fact that I've made friends was magical in the first place. And so I'm just sort of going through this process of figuring out who is and who is not a friend. And, you know, it ends yeah. up disappointing at times. Like there are, there's at least one person I can think of very specifically where I thought we were friends in, you know, she did a motherfucking episode on my show about friendship, like, mm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and talks on it about how great I was when she was having a hard time and shit like that. And we went to Chicago for the, there's a true crying podcast thing. Oh Chicago. yeah. yeah. And we had an interaction where she, she left something in her car that I was like, Hey, that's, I need that. She's like, I don't want to go back to my car. It's like 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back to get it and I'm like okay well but it's in your car she's like oh we'll send your daughter send Emily I'm like I'm not sending my kid to go get the thing that you left in your car and I like walked away and like an hour later I still didn't have the thing and I was like hey where's my thing and she's like I just I I'm, I'm here to promote my podcast I'm not gonna go get it and I'm like okay first of all two out of your three stickers were designed by my kid Right. Mm -hmm. So your promotion is because of me. Secondly, grow the fuck up. You fuck something up. You fix it. And I walked away. She's not spoken to me since. Uh. You know, and I feel like, look, I overreacted. I overstepped in that moment because I was pissed off and stressed out and I barked and I, and I like, I totally own that. And I went to her later and tried to apologize. And she was just like, no, I don't want to hear it anymore. And I was like, okay. Like, and so that's, there's that, that experience of like, oh, I was looking at you as though you were a three-dimensional person, but apparently we had a one-dimensional friendship. Like, oh, that's, that's shitty. But then I look at other people like the other day, like I didn't have even noticed that I had been checking in with one, one guy daily. Mm-hmm. He's been going through a rough thing. I hadn't noticed, I, you know, cause it wasn't like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I must check in, you know? <laughs> It was just, it was a thing. And then the other day it was like 1130 at night for me and I'm going to bed and he texts me. He's like, are you okay? I oh, like, you didn't <laughs> me. Oh, that's, I was like, that's the cutest. Like, oh my God, we have, we are friends, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just been this like really interesting process to see like how three dimensional it's okay to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. It's, it's, because your your net is like your people are everywhere like you can connect on a variety of different ways like different things might connect you but like how long lasting are those things are the question you know those similarities those common interests and yeah it's tricky but I don't know yeah. Well, and I think that's yeah. uh, you know that's something I mean, we can do in a whole a whole other episode sometime on this whole concept of like three dimensionality and about the idea that I think having gone through a near death experience, I have more capacity for nuance. Yeah, but I have no ability to bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that went away really quickly. Like the idea. Yeah, like I can deal with nuance, but I can't suffer fools gladly. Like, and that used to be like as a woman in the corporate or nonprofit world, that's often the role you get put in. Yeah. And I was really good at it. I was a producer, 
the director of administration. I could like do it. And then after I was like, I have credentials and two degrees. I'm not going to act like a cheerleader who, who just smiles like, fuck this. And I'm not your mom. Like I'm a professional and I'm going to act like a professional. And I'm also way more skilled than all your men here, which is often common. The case, like the case usually. And then I got canned for my job. Uh, but you know and uh, yeah i i used to get like i would get the same feedback like you're a lone wolf you're not you you know and i was just like but i'm a team player i just i don't look for accolades i just do my job and i'll call you on your bullshit if it happens and that was back when i was working professionally when i was working at the house and you know it's funny the things that have come through from my former personality yeah. And I'm not like, I know that I'm more emotional than I used to be. I know that I am in some ways softer and more empathic and in other ways, like edgier. Yeah. You know, like I'm more likely, like I'm more animated when I speak than I used to be, which my husband for a long time. And I think probably still would mistake as angry. <laughs> you have an inner Italian. You have an inner Italian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm Irish. And so, you know, there's the drunk <laughs> thing. <laughs> But that, you know, in that I would be like, I'm not angry. Yeah. It's just me without as many filters as I used to have. And so one of the things is that I have more patience than I used to yeah. until, you know, and there will come that moment where oh. I tip over that edge of you just got stupid and I'm going to call you on it and I'm going to do it in public or in private or on the phone or in text. I'm like, I don't care. I know no bounds. Here I'm not going to wait until it's convenient for you for me to ream you out. Like I'm not going to wait six hours and then later say, okay, listen, honey, your behavior earlier was inappropriate because I'm like, you're fucking 27 years old, grow the fuck up and fix your mistakes. <laughs> so <laughs> I may have not had a friend there. <laughs> yeah, no, but it is true. I mean, you, I mean, you definitely dealt with like, um, a, a, a pretty concrete, like, like almost like not universal personality change. Cause you are mentioning things that came through like old bits of you that came through, but for the most part, you know, you, you had to deal with a whole new way of acting and relating to the world. And, um, but a lot of that I think would have, I, I would, I would, I would bet that some of the ways that you have changed would have changed anyway. It's hard to know, you know, like I made it until 32 with a certain style, a certain way yeah. you know, to get existential. It's the, you know, the, the, yeah, but, the way of being in the world. But and, you know, I, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, when I talk to people who've had near death stuff, it's funny that like, there's always like a commonality of like, they, uh, they, they don't put up with bullshit as much anymore. <laughs> like they want a directness in life. <laughs> like you don't they, have time. Yeah. You don't have time. There's also like, um, uh, kind of a not caring what people think. I was amused at the end there when Angela talks about not being able to cope with bullshit because that's an aspect of myself that I've always had on the one hand, but I don't think about on the other. I don't think I ignore it because it's always been there. I I don't know. I just don't see it, except I totally know it's there. And not very long before she and I talked, I had actually had it come up twice in other podcasts, once in an episode of my own and once in an entirely different one. 
first Adam on Odd Dad Out mentioned like months ago, mentioned my show and described me as Kate gives no fucks. And then more recently, Paul came on my show and at some point referred to the fact that I don't have any tolerance for bullshit. And I was like, (laughs) there it is. Like, it's that obvious, huh? (laughs) Because I, it's true. I really don't. I don't give fucks and I don't tolerate bullshit. I think that's been there my whole adult life. I think that's probably been there my whole entire life. But more so since I've hit some of these watershed moments and everything changed and I just, I didn't have time. Didn't you feel better before you knew that? Angela, thank you so much for talking with me. It was fun to kind of turn the tables and have you be on the other side of the interview, as it were. And I wish you so much luck with your upcoming endeavors. And I hope you come back on the show with an update, you know, sooner rather than later. Thank you guys for listening. And, you know, I I just put up a poll in my Facebook group because... I have so many episodes kind of stacked up that I really don't know where to go next with it. So if you have any input on that, the link to the Facebook group is in the show notes, or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook at IWB Podcast and let me know what you think. I just, I have a lot stacked up. And now luckily I don't have quite as many conversations scheduled as usual. It's kind of feast or famine. You know, sometimes I have a, you know, metric crap load and it seems like every night I'm talking to somebody and then other times I have a span of a week where I can start to sort of catch up with my own shit. So that's what I'm trying to do. And if you have any input on what next or what order, you know, hit me up in the Facebook group and you know, make it interactive, right? So I, 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 I don't know what's going to come next, but you know, we'll find out pretty soon, I think. Until then, stay sane. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. 
So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. I'm Brandy, and my husband, Douglas, and I host That Dead Body Show. We talk about dead bodies, murder, the victims, and those that just play the victim. All with the sarcastic, foul-mouthed, dark humor that you'll come to love us for. Or not. Even, Even if, if we, we talk, talk over, over each, each other, other sometimes. sometimes. Jinx. Download us with your favorite podcatcher and find us on all social media at That Dead Body Show.